Welcome to FPC Meridian Sermon Podcast. In this sermon, our head pastor, Dr. Rhett Payne, studies the book of Romans. We pray that God's hand would be upon you as you listen to the faithful preaching of his word. Let's begin. By faith, into this grace in which we now stand, and we boast in the hope of the glory of God. Not only so, but we also glory in our sufferings. Because we know that suffering produces perseverance. Perseverance, character. And character, hope. And hope does not put us to shame because God's love has been poured out into our hearts through the Holy Spirit who has been given to us. You see, at just the right time, when we were still powerless, Christ died for the ungodly. Very rarely will anyone die for a righteous person, though for a good person, someone might possibly dare to die. But God demonstrates his own love for us in this. While we were still sinners, Christ died for us. Since we have now been justified by his blood, how much more shall we be saved from God's wrath through him? For if while we were God's enemies... We were reconciled to him through the death of his son. How much more, having been reconciled, shall we be saved through his life? Not only is this so, but we also boast in God through our Lord Jesus Christ, through whom we have now received reconciliation. The grass withers, the flowers fall, but the word of our God stands forever. Let us pray. Lord Jesus, thank you for this, your word. We pray, thanking you for what you have to teach us. And Lord God, in the midst of life, which is not easy, speak to us through this word and teach us and give us receptive hearts to receive what you say to us. I pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Please be seated. On a visit to two California vineyards, author Margaret Feinberg discovered that vendors, vineyard merchants, must adopt a long-term approach to their work. According to Feinberg, the first year a vineyard plants, a sh- plants shoots of vines rather than seeds because these yield the strongest vines. At the end of the first growing season, he cuts them back. A second year passes. He cuts them back again. Only after the third year does he see his first viable cluster of grapes. Serious vineyards leave those clusters on the vines. For most vineyards, it's not until year four that they bring in their first harvest. For those growing grapes for winemaking, they'll bottle their harvest but won't taste the fruit of their labors until years seven or eight. Most vineyards in Napa Valley won't reach a break-even point, he says, she says, for their investment until year 15, 18, or beyond. And so applying these spiritual insights to her spiritual life, Feinberg writes these words. Sometimes I look at my own life and wonder, why am I not more fruitful? And why does pruning have to hurt so much? Why does cultivating a healthy crop take so long? Yet those questions circle around the here and now. God's perspective is much different. Like a good vineyard owner, he knows how to bring about fruitfulness better than I ever will. And he is more patient with me, more patient than I am with myself. Also, 
as we fulfill our callings, we must recognize that, like the vineyards, our fruitfulness will not come overnight. The first harvest of our labors may not come for three or five years. Unfortunately, life is filled with pain, not just pleasure. But the gospel has an answer for the believer. And so that's what we're looking at today is these wonderful verses in Romans 5, verses 1 through 11. I hope you'll keep your outline nearby and I hope you'll take some notes. This is also your curriculum for small groups if you attend a small group. It's a great time to jump into a small group tonight. This is the study for tonight. So, lesson number one of three. And lesson number one can be confusing because it's a little long. Number one, our sufferings lead us to rejoice. Our sufferings lead us to rejoice. Who does that? Who does that? I mean, it seems countercultural at best, and at worst, it seems masochistic to rejoice when you're suffering. Yet we read in verse 3, after reading, we boast in the hope of the glory of God. Verse 3 says not only that, but we also glory, which is boast, we also, we also boast in our sufferings. Now, prepositions are very important, and so the word there is in our sufferings, not so much for our sufferings. And it's worth noting that in 1 Thessalonians, where Paul also told the believers in Thessalonica to rejoice always, those believers in Thessalonica had experienced significant adversity. 1 Thessalonians 1 verse 6 says, You became imitators of us and of the Lord. You welcomed the message of the gospel in the midst of severe suffering with the joy given by the Holy Spirit. And some of you know exactly what He's talking about there. Some of you have been through intense suffering and you know what it is to experience joy that you cannot explain. You you know what that is. It's something that's supernatural. It's not something from you. It's not because you're just a positive person. It's because God, through the Holy Spirit, enables you to rejoice even when it's not been a good time. How are believers supposed to rejoice always? Even to glory in, boast about times of terrible suffering? Well, the answer is this, by focusing on the deep and unshakable joy that comes through our hope of eternal life, made possible by Jesus Christ, who has reconciled us to our Creator, and who will return as our victorious King. Turn with me to Romans chapter 12. We're in Romans 5, so turn a few chapters past there to Romans chapter 12. And this is verse 12. I really don't have to tell this verse or share this verse for Tom Maynard because this is Tom's favorite verse. Romans 12, 12. Be joyful in hope, patient in affliction. Faithful in prayer. And Tom, you really are an inspiration to me and to all of us, you and Ann both, because of the way you respond to the trouble, the suffering that you've endured for years. 
And it's a blessing for us to see you here every Sunday. And we know it's not easy for you are in. But they know what this verse is talking about. Tim Keller kind of explains this verse when he says this. Christians look through their sufferings to the certainties. Christians look through their sufferings to the certainties. And some of you know exactly what he's talking about. And and when faced with people who are treating you terribly, even because you're a Christian, which is happening worldwide now, particularly in the Middle East, Jesus said these words in Matthew 5. Rejoice and be glad, which seems, again, so countercultural. Why should you rejoice and be glad? Because great is your reward in heaven. How have people endured suffering throughout the centuries? By focusing on what is to come. By focusing on what is to come. Because great is our reward in heaven, for in the same way they persecuted the prophets who were before you, is what Jesus says. So in other words, the prophets had to deal with the same sorts of things, and they focused on what was to come. So in this way, we follow the example of the Lord Jesus, who, for the joy set before him, for the joy set before him, endured the cross, scorning its shame, and sat down at the right hand of the throne of God. And so the writer of Hebrews in chapter 12 says, Consider him, consider him, consider Jesus, who endured such opposition from sinful people so that you won't grow weary and lose heart. And and actually, the writer of Hebrews goes on to say, you haven't really suffered to the point of shedding your blood, have you? In other words, if you really want to compare yourself to the people of God, a lot of people have shed blood in suffering for Christ. You haven't gone that far. And so he's saying, kind of compare your suffering to, to real suffering, biblical suffering, and that gives you that perspective that only the gospel can give you, that only scripture can give you. Now, in Hebrews, turn to Hebrews 5, verse 8, and let's look at that verse. Hebrews 5, verse 8. And actually, I'm going to read 7 and 8. You can't really understand 8 without 7. So, Hebrews 5, 7. During the days of Jesus' life on earth, he offered up prayers and petitions with fervent cries and tears to the one who could save him from death. And he was heard because of his reverent submission. And then verse 8. Son, though he was. In other words, even though he was God. Son, though he was. He learned obedience from what he suffered. Do you keep in mind the glorious future perspective that is awaiting the believer when you're in the midst of suffering, when you're in the midst of a trial? Are you continually moved to rejoice because Jesus has saved you from your sins? And for the unending fellowship with God... That you will enjoy for all eternity in the new heavens and the new earth. Is that something that ever comes to mind? Because I'm telling you, if you focus on your sufferings, if you focus on your trials, you will not get through those trials. You have to focus on something greater than your trials. The Apostle Paul taught this under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit. He lived this and that's why he was able to rejoice in hope always. Now, Paul wasn't talking about when he speaks of sufferings. He wasn't talking about our aches and our pains, 
our fears and our frustrations, our disappointments, and so on. He actually uses a Greek word that's a strong word. It's the word thalipses. It's in your outline. Thalipses. And it literally means pressures. Pressures. Referring specifically to the opposition and the persecution of a hostile world. The word Paul uses was a term meant for the suffering which God's people should expect in the last days before the end of time. Jesus even warned his disciples that this world would never bring us just pleasure. Jesus said, in this world, you will have trouble. So what is his point? Paul's point that since we serve a sovereign Lord who is in charge, who's on the throne, there is always a divine rationale or a divine purpose behind our suffering. For one thing, and this is where my outline gets a little confusing. I'm going to give you about four things here, but they're all part of lesson one. For one thing, according to scripture, suffering is the one and only path to glory. Paul even warned his converts in the book of Acts that, quote, they must go through many hardships to enter the kingdom of God. So suffering is part and parcel of the Christian life. And then secondly, and still in lesson one, secondly, Paul says that suffering produces something very important in your life and mine. And what is that blank? What is that word? Maturity. Maturity. The way Paul puts it is suffering produces perseverance or endurance. And without suffering, there wouldn't be anything to endure, would there? Thirdly, and still in lesson one, perseverance produces character. The word character refers to the person who has been tested and has passed the test. And finally, in this first lesson, the result of character is hope. Hope. The hope of sharing in God's future glory. And the result of that hope? Well, that leads us to the second lesson. Okay, so the first lesson, our sufferings lead us to rejoice. There's so many wonderful reasons we can rejoice as believers. Second lesson, our sufferings point us to the proof of God's love for us. The proof of God's love for us. Where do you find the proof that God loves you? You won't find that in your circumstances, but you will find it in the cross and on the cross. The cross is a demonstration of love, which is without parallel, without anything worthy of comparison. It is the overwhelming evidence that God loves us. And so look with me at Romans chapter five, verses six through eight. Romans five, six through eight. And Apostle Paul writes and says, you see, at, at just the right time, when we were still powerless, Christ died for the ungodly. Very rarely will anyone die for a righteous person, though for a good person, someone might possibly dare to die. But God demonstrates his own love for us in this. While we were still sinners, still haters of God, Christ died for us. Look at how we're depicted. We're depicted as powerless in ourselves. Not only that, we're ungodly. And then lastly, we're sinners. And to us, God condescends and offers to us his love. 
Now, I don't know about you, but I can be very generous to the people that I consider worthy of my affection and worthy of my respect. But to those who hate me, to those who are my enemies, I can't even imagine giving myself over to death on behalf of them. Can you? I mean, honestly? Romans 5.8 is so powerful. While we were still sinners, Christ died for us. Of course, many people like to point out the opposite, that it's in suffering that we doubt God's love, which I'm sure you can understand. So look with me at, at verse five of chapter five. Hope does not put us to shame because God's love has been poured out into our hearts through the Holy Spirit who has been given to us. I want you to think about this. The world's idea of hope is to put all our eggs in some basket as if that investment of our time and our money is going to bring us joy only to see that investment fail. When it does fail, we're completely devastated, rightly so. But the Bible is reminding us the hope we have from God will never, never disappoint us. In fact, the New Testament tells us that if we are not in the faith, if we do not believe, we are without hope and destined ultimately to disappointment. So that leads me to say what an incredible thing the Christian experience really is. As the world beats us down or beats us up, it drives us to what? To our hope, to our hope that is in Jesus Christ. It stirs up our hope of, our longings for something greater than what we're experiencing here on this earth, which hopefully drives us to think about heaven and what is to come. How could we ever doubt God's love? Well, because we're human and we go through sufferings that make us question. Life can be so hard. The tragedies, the tribulations that we can find ourselves in the midst of can be so very painful. But then we remember that God has proved his love for us in the death of his son, according to verse eight of our text. And he has poured his love into us by the gift of the Holy Spirit who comes to live inside of us. And so look with me at Romans chapter eight. We've been in Romans five today, but we're going to look at a couple of verses in this last lesson. The next in the last lesson that talked about something from Romans chapter eight. So look at Romans eight, verse nine. You, however, are not in the realm of the flesh, but are in the realm of the spirit. If indeed the spirit of God lives in you and if anyone does not have the spirit of Christ, they do not belong to Christ. And so our sufferings point us to the to the whole proof of God's love, which we find in Romans eight, verse nine. So first lesson, our sufferings lead us to rejoice. Second lesson, our sufferings point us to the proof of. Of God's love. And the third and final lesson is our suffering leads us to rejoice in God. Look at verse 9 of chapter 5. We just looked at 8, 9. We're looking at 5, 9 in your text. Since we have now been justified by his blood, how much more shall we be saved from God's wrath through him? Now, you hear the wrath of God. We've talked about the wrath of God a good bit in this book. You need to know this wrath of God is not because God is angry or vengeful. This is a legal wrath. It's a legal wrath. He's laid out the law. And these are those who completely violate the law, which is all of us. It's a legal wrath. So he's not 
He's not having a bad day. He's not in a bad mood. He's legally exercising his wrath. But he exercised that wrath against his own son who shed his blood so that we could be saved from God's legal wrath. It's just an incredible, amazing love that Jesus has demonstrated by going to that cross for us. So, so, so far, the, the Apostle Paul is focused on what God has already done for us through Jesus Christ. Think about what we studied last week and this week. We've been justified through faith in Jesus Christ. If you're a Christian, you've been justified. That means you've been declared not guilty, even though you are guilty. God has declared you not guilty. If you've repented of your sins and trusted Christ, we've been given peace with God. We're no longer estranged from God. We are now in oneness with God through Jesus Christ. So there's there's peace between us. There's no anger. There's no wrath. It's all been cleared up by Christ. We're standing in this state of grace. This ability to be in the presence of God. Not something that we could ever do on our own, but God has accomplished that for us in Christ. And so we rejoice in our hope of what the future lies. What's out there for us. It's God's plan for us. It's a beautiful plan. We rejoice in our hope as well as in our sufferings. But on top of that, there's more to come. In fact, much more to come. If someone were to ask you this, have you been saved? What would you answer? Have you been saved? You know, it would just be as it'd be just as biblical to answer no as it would be to answer yes. So actually, the correct answer is yes and no, if you're a Christian. Yes and no. For yes, if you've come to Christ in faith and repentance, you've been saved through Christ from the guilt of your sins and from the judgment of of God upon them. But on the other hand, no, you've not yet been delivered from indwelling sin and been given a new body in the new heavens and the new earth. All that still remains to come. Verse 9 says, we shall be saved from the wrath of God because of what Jesus did. Why does it say that? Because at the end of history, there will be what Paul calls a day of God's wrath, which will be poured out on all of those who have rejected Jesus Christ. So for the believer, we shall be saved from that coming wrath. John five twenty four is a great verse. I share this with people all the time. About the gospel, John 5, 24, Jesus said, truly, I tell you, whoever hears my word and believes him who sent me has eternal life. Now, do you get that that's something that's already been accomplished? You have eternal life and will not be judged. That is not condemned, but has crossed over from death to life. So if you're a Christian, you have already crossed over to a new dimension. You're standing in grace. And you know the Lord Jesus, and he is your Savior, and the future is bright. Then verse 10 says, we shall be saved through Christ's life. Look at chapter 5 of Romans, verse 10. For if, while we were God's enemies, we were reconciled to him through the death of his son, how much more, having been reconciled, shall we be saved through his life? It's not a misprint. It's not supposed to be death. We're saved through his life. The question is, what does that mean to us? Why does it say we're saved through his life? He's referring, Paul's referring to the active obedience of our Lord Jesus, whose perfect life does not count for nothing. His perfect life was very, very important. It assures us, you and I, of the righteousness of God, that alien righteousness that we have to have to be in the presence of God that we don't have in ourselves. 
Who has it? Jesus has it. And when we trust Christ as our Savior, we receive his righteousness, which is not our own, so that we can actually stand before God justified, not being condemned. It's the most incredible news in the world that Jesus died and rose again from the dead so that we could not only experience the power of his death, but the power of his resurrected life as Jesus comes to live in us. Look at 8.11, Romans 8, verse 11. Told you there's a lot to talk about tonight at small groups. Romans 8, 11, And if the Spirit, Holy Spirit of Him, who raised Jesus from the dead, is living in you, He who raised Christ from the dead will also give life to your mortal bodies because of His Spirit who lives in you. And so if you're a Christian today, Christ lives in you. Think about that for a moment. How incredible that is. We go, oh, we should not do that. This is, we're talking about Jesus Christ alive in us. His Spirit living in us. It seems clear that from this passage of Scripture, the major mark of the believer, even when the believer is suffering, is joy. Not joy that is happiness. Not the same thing. Nobody's happy about suffering. But joy is a deep abiding assurance that God's in charge and that God's working on something even though we can't see it right now. And that's where faith comes in. Faith comes in because we need Jesus when we're going through suffering. We can rejoice in God no matter what we're going through even though it's no fun to go through bad times. Even though it's no fun to go through suffering and trials. Even though it's no fun to be hurting all the time. We can rejoice, not in those things, but in the fact that God is at work in our lives. Doing something for our good. Because God loves us. And that brings us to our verse of the week, which is Matthew 13, verse 44. Let's read this verse out loud together. It's in your outline. Matthew 13, 44 at the bottom. The kingdom of heaven is like treasure hidden in a field. When a man found it, he hid it again, and then in his joy went and sold all he had and bought that field. Why did he buy that field? Why did he buy that field? Because there's nothing more precious than the treasure that you and I have in Jesus Christ. Nothing. As a result, our hearts should be overcome with joy, with gratitude, and most of all, worship. Let us pray. Lord Jesus, thank you for being there for us. Lord, this life is so hard, has so many joys, but so many sorrows. I can't imagine a day without you in my life, Lord. So thankful for my salvation. For those in front of me today that also have received you as their Savior, Lord Jesus. For anyone in this place who is not, would you touch their heart and lead them to pray and ask you, Lord, to come into their life. Change their life from the inside out. Lord, we're all a work in progress. And thank God you're not finished with me yet. That there's still more for you to do in maturing me and maturing my brothers and my sisters in Christ. But Lord, maturing and growing is painful. 
And it takes a long time. Sometimes, Lord, we ask, how come it's taken so long? Because it's hard. And so we thank you for the grace that you give to us when we need your grace. Help us, Lord, to take our eyes away from our sufferings, away from our problems, and turn them to you. Just as the writer of Hebrews says, looking unto Jesus, the author and the finisher of our faith, who for the joy set before him endured the cross. So, Lord, help us to look beyond our, our present sufferings to the joy, to the joy in you, to the, to the hope that we have in the person of Jesus Christ. And, Lord, may that hope be our, our, our anchor every single day as we live. Grow us in your grace, Lord that we might rejoice in you all our days. I pray in Jesus' name. Amen.